Thank you. All right, guys, good morning. Thanks for uh, braving the cold, braving the ice. You all made it safely, so not a big deal to you, Sam. All right, that's good. Um, Sorry, we're starting a little bit late. We're continuing our study in the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, and today we're talking about lawful oaths and religious vows. Um, I made an oath if, you know, it gets below 20 degrees up here on the mountain. I was moving back to Florida, so I'm going to have to break that one, I guess, today. Um, I'm a Floridian. I, I love Florida, but, you know, things, when it gets below 11 degrees up here, I'm like, man, this Florida's a great place. Yeah, you got to deal with pythons, crocodiles, all that stuff. I better start because we're recording, so everyone on Sermon Audio is going to be like, what in the world is happening? Um, so let me open with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for uh, keeping those uh, who are attending today safe as they uh, traveled here. And Lord, we just pray for all of those as they travel to um, honor you um, and honor, honor the Sabbath and the Lord's Day uh, as we gather together as the saints, that you would keep those safe as they travel, um, that you would bless our time together as we dive into scripture as we uh, seek to be changed in our hearts and minds and to be instructed um, in your past, Lord. Um, so, Lord, we ask that you would uh, bless our time together uh, as we unpack this uh, confession and look at scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. So, today we're talking about lawful oaths and vows, and if you were me, and I was, I was thinking about this as I was studying and I was writing my own confession of faith. This is not a section I probably would have included. I probably would not have thought to include a section on, oh, let's, let's talk about oaths, let's talk about vows. It's not something that maybe we, in our current context, are used to. Um, I don't know how many of you guys have been in a court of law. I have not. I've actually never done an oath uh, to say the whole piece, and nothing, or the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Um, and some of you might, you know, have come from Catholic backgrounds, so maybe you are familiar with certain monastic vows or something like that. Um, but definitely not a section in the confession uh, I would have been drawn to. You know, you kind of read through it, and you're like, oh, that's cool. And then you get to, you know, civil magistrate. Ooh, that's interesting. Oh, the church or baptism. Oh, man, this is awesome. Um, but I think there's a lot of good... Um, there's, there's an importance to this chapter. Why? Because it's about truth. And in our society, truth is one of those things that's being attacked the most, right? Um, if you said there's a certain uh, thing such as objective truth, right? Some people would look at you with like a deer in the headlights and be like, what are you talking about? Uh, there's my truth, right? Or there's their truth. Um, there's, there's no objective truth. And so the act of taking an oath and a vow in a lot of ways, is about truth. It's about staying true to your word. It's about having integrity. And in our society, that's just not super prevalent. Um, it, it's, you know, get where, get where you can go, you know, get wealth, keep your health, all of those things. And if you need to lie along the way, if you need to stretch the truth, go ahead and do it. Um, so I think there, there's a lot we can learn from this chapter, even though it may not be one that was on your radar. So, the historical context and outline of this chapter, 
We're going to look at the Roman Catholic vows of celibacy, poverty, hermitage, some of the monastic uh, vows, the, the vows that the nuns take. That will be in section 5. In London, or in England at that time, there was an abuse of oath-taking by the civil magistrate. So if you know your constitution, you might know that we have a Fifth Amendment, which is essentially gives you the right not to perjure yourself or not to give witness against yourself, right? So you might have heard someone say, hey, I plead the Fifth, or I, I have the right to remain silent. Um, they didn't have that in England. So sometimes they would try and force a confession out of you, um, even if it meant you, know, you perjured yourself or said something you didn't mean to say. And then finally, there was a rejection of oath and vows by the Anabaptists and the Quakers. They would refuse to take any oaths. And this was a problem because when they did come into a court of law, they wouldn't take an oath. And you know, they would say, hey, this is on religious grounds. Um, but they obviously, there was a lot of problems with that approach, and we'll talk about that as well. So, sections one through four, oaths defined and the practice of oaths dissected. Oh, it's cut off there. And then the last chapter is vows defined and the critique of Catholic practices of vow taking. And obviously, you see marriage vows. Yeah, I was a little cheeky and I put Bill Clinton up there because you know you get your, he's taking an oath. He breaks his oath a little bit, so that's, that's my cheeky little take there. Um, so here's my first question. How do oaths and vows differ? What's the difference? This is something I, I wouldn't have known before I read and studied this chapter. But perhaps you guys know. What, what's the difference between an oath and a vow? Yes, Jill. Jill got an oath. It's still, it, it's invoking God's name, but it's meant to be among people, right? To witness the people. Of like, oh, I'm taking an oath. Now you know that I'm telling the truth. Whereas a vow doesn't necessarily involve other people. A vow might be straight to God and saying, hey, I'm going to have, I'm going to follow a certain behavior, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes, so there is a lot of overlap between oaths and vows. Um, I mean, you swear both. So marriage, it's really, it, it, we call it a vow because ultimately you are making a promise to God that you are going to be faithful to this individual. But there is an oath-taking element because you do make it within the context of other people. So that's where some of the overlap is. Same with, um, uh, let, me, let me think, what, what's the other vow? Or your membership vows. If you take church membership vows, right? Ultimately, you're making that to God. But you're making it within the context of the local body. So there's an oath-taking kind of component to it. But that's a good question. Yeah. So yes, Jill got it. Um, so we see here in the first paragraph an oath defined. So the confession reads, A lawful oath is an element of religious worship in which a person swearing in truth, righteousness, and judgment solemnly calls God to witness what is sworn and to judge the one swearing according to the truth and falsity of it. So, 
we see right here in that kind of that second part of the paragraph, calling God to witness what is sworn and to judge the one swearing according to the truth and falsity of it. So this is why we use it in a court of law, right? It's saying, hey, you're in a situation where you need to tell the truth, right? Because we need to settle this dispute. Um, so you're calling God as a witness. Why are we calling God as a witness? How would we answer that? What? Why don't we call another individual as a witness? Why do we call to God specifically? Casey? Because God will know whether or not we break the oath in a way that like, men can't know. Exactly. Because God knows everything, right? He's omniscient. Uh, he's omnipresent. He's everywhere. He's omnipotent. He has the power to make sure you do uphold that oath and that vow, right? Um, he says, you know, vengeance is mine. So that's why we invoke God's name. And we'll talk a little bit more in the confession. We'll deal with that um, because there was a practice where individuals would vow and take oaths by other things. And you may have heard that, right? I swear on my mother's grave or something like that. That's a common one. Why do we not do that? Why is, why is that a bad practice? Well, it's because that is not God, right? And your mother's grave does not know uh, everything. It has no power in, to enforce that oath. So we'll talk a little bit more about that, but one thing I want to focus on is what the confession means by an element of religious worship. Right? If, you, if you've been to our church service, you might think, we don't take oaths in our service. Right? Oath-taking is not necessarily a weekly uh, Sunday worship activity. Um, so what does the confession mean by that? Well, it means that it's not necessarily public worship in which we take oaths, but it's private worship in our life as citizen, uh, in our jobs, our vocations, uh, within our families. Um, it plays off the previous chapter on the Sabbath where it says God is to be worshipped everywhere. So yes, the Lord's Day is that commanded Sabbath and, and that special gathering of the saints, but yet we do worship God in all of our life, in all of our actions. So when we take oaths, right, if we swear or we promise anything, we are really always invoking God's name in some respect. Because we're, if, if he is the creator, if he is the truth maker, right, if he is truth himself, then when we are swearing in truth, and we're saying, hey, this is true, we are, in, in a sense, always worshiping God. So anytime we swear an oath, we talked about this before, as Christians, we're worshiping God by acknowledging his omnipotence, his omnipresence, his omniscience. Proverbs 15.3 is a, is a great summation of this. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and good. So even when we don't take an oath on Scripture, uh, we are, and we claim to be telling the truth, in some respect, right, we are making an oath, right? We are saying, hey, my word is true, and I'm invoking God's name. And this is really true for even non-Christians. Anytime anybody swears an oath, it's religious in some sense. Um, believing in truth involves believing in God. This is why our society hates objective truth, because they have to acknowledge a creator. They have to acknowledge a lawgiver. They have to acknowledge truth itself, right? Um, so it is really interesting in our society, we have plenty of non-Christians who take oaths in courts of law, 
And that's a religious act in a lot of ways. They might not be uh, recognizing God as, as their God and uh, their Savior and the truth giver, but yet, in some respect, they are appealing to that higher power. Any questions regarding that first paragraph? Yes, Dick. So we become more secular and more atheistic in our country. Have they removed the loving God from the oath that is in court? So Dick, Dick is asking, have they removed So Help Me God from the oath-taking because we just got more secular and atheistic? I don't believe they have, but I know that people have gotten around saying it. They, they'll just mumble, or they won't say anything. And I think I did see a video. Uh, it was a Michigan lawmaker getting voted in, and she just refused basically to say the oath. She just kind of stood up there like this. So there, there's, there's ways to get around it, right? I mean, if someone is voted into office, if they refuse to take the oath, there's not really a you know, way to not, like that's not a reason they can't be in office. Is that your perspective? Yeah. And then you do that, it's also not taking the hand of the Bible. It used to be, you put your hand on the Bible and you took your oath. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, they did. That was common practice, right? To put their hand on the Bible, and people still do it. Um, but definitely it's not a requirement. So some people will just hold their hand up. So, yeah, it's a good question, good comment. All right, John Flavel. Flavel? Flavel? Am I saying that right? Nobody knows. Nobody? Okay, good. Okay. <laughs> I was hoping you would say that. John Flavel, however you want to say it, <clears throat> says... Swearing by the name of God in a righteous cause, when called thereto by due authority, is not only lawful, but it's a religious act, founded upon and directed by the honor of God's omniscience, whereunto there is a solemn appeal made in every assertory and promissory, promissory oath, and a religious acknowledgement, acknowledgement made him of his infallible knowledge of the truth, or falsehood of our hearts, and all the secrets of them, be they never so involved in inward things. So again, uh, talking about any time we swear that we are telling the truth, um, it, it, it is not unlawful to do that. Um, there is a right time to swear an oath and to swear vows. And we'll talk about that a little bit later, some of the circumstances. Um, but ultimately what you're doing is you're acknowledging who God is. And so that's why it's an element of worship. So, section number two, the sanctity of an oath. People should swear by the name of God alone and only with the utmost holy fear and reverence. Therefore, to swear in an empty or ill-advised oath that by glorious and awe-inspiring name or to swear at anything, to swear at all by anything else is sinful and to be abhorred. Yet in weighty and significant matters, an oath is authorized by the word of God to confirm truth and to end all conflict. So a lawful oath should be taken when it is required by legitimate authority in such circumstances. So, so the confession is saying, hey, taking an oath is serious business, right? So it's, you're, you need to be reverent when you're doing it. Um, and so taking oaths rashly taking oaths, uh, like I said, swearing on your mother's grave or something like that. Just using that in common uh, phraseology and common conversation is ill-advised. You shouldn't do it. You have to understand what you're doing. And yet, 
in weighty and significant matters, an oath is authorized, authorized right? So we talk about um, you know, marriage vows, having some of those oath components. We talk about membership vows in church. We talk about vows when you become a citizen of a country, you might take some oaths, take some vows. Court of law, yes, Chandler? Yes. But I'm wondering what you think, or you know, you or Pastor Nathan, Simon, but how does this relate to civil magistrate in that the requirement of vows in court or taking political office, um, swearing by the name of God, is that just God in general as the creator that we can know by natural theology, or is it trying God, the Father, Son, and Spirit? And how does that relate to yeah, it's a good question. I mean, there, there's a lot there. As far as, you're talking about the lawfulness, and you're talking about who we swear to, correct? So it's kind of a dumb question. Yeah, the lawfulness, that was something that the Anabaptists, that the Quakers said, hey, it's unlawful to swear an oath at all. And actually, we'll get to that question in just a sec, because we're going to read Matthew 5, 33 through 37. If you guys want to turn in the scriptures there. This is a text that the Anabaptists and the Quakers utilized to say we should not swear, specifically in a court of law. We, sh we should not make any oaths. And this is Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. So in verse 33, Jesus says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. <clears throat> so again, Anabaptists, Quakers, and you know many other Christians have utilized this verse and said, well... It's pretty clear. He's saying, do not take an oath at all. Let your yes, yes and your no be no. So how do we view this? I mean, obviously, we have many oaths and vows that we take in life. Or is that sinful? Should we not be doing that? Is that what Jesus is teaching here? Uh, I want to hear from y'all. What do you guys think? Sam, you got some ideas now to solve this? Yeah, so Sam's saying, you know, is, it, is Jesus more talking about the abuse of oath-taking, doing it rashly, doing it for your own gain, your selfish gain? It's a good idea. Any other thoughts? Yes. The tentative hand raise, I like that. <laughs> Yeah, that's a great observation. Remind me of your name? Uh, Janelle. Janelle pointed out, hey, he doesn't say anywhere not to swear by God. 
It's to swear by heaven or by Jerusalem or by foot, the footstool of heaven, um, by the earth, by your own head, right? Um, that's a great, great observation. What, what do all those things have in common? The earth, yourself, swearing on yourself, um, the city. They're not God. They're not God. Yeah, exactly, right? They're God's creation. So you're swearing on something that God has created. And all, none of those things, again, are omniscient, omnipotent, all-powerful. Jill? Yes, so that's, that's the, the big question, right? When it says, do not swear at all. What does the at all mean? Um, and that is where, I'm going to turn to John Calvin, because he's smarter than me. Um, Thank you. I like the pushback. That made me feel good. Um, we're going to look at this quote by John Calvin. He says, To meet this crime of swearing, right, our Lord declares that they must not swear at all, either this way or that way, either by heaven or by earth. Hence, we conclude that the particle at all relates not to the substance of the swearing, but to the form, the type, or the method of swearing. And means neither directly nor indirectly. It otherwise would have been superfluous to enumerate those kinds, and therefore the Anabaptists betray not only a rage for controversy, but gross ignorance, when they obstinately press upon us a single word and pass over with closed eyes the whole scope of the passage. So, if you look at all of Scripture, right, there's numerous, numerous examples of individuals taking oaths. In fact, God takes oaths. Right? We read in Hebrews 6, which is another text I was going to read, that the Lord swore by himself because there was nothing greater. Right? So the Lord himself takes oaths. And he demands that individuals take oaths right when they covenant with him. All the covenants are based off oaths, off promises. So the question is, if oaths are just throughout all of Scripture always allowed, always looked on positively, unless they're rashly done, unless there's an abuse, then why does Jesus all of a sudden seem to switch and say at all? Well, the reason why is because when you do look further, it does enumerate those types of swearing, right? So he's talking to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees used to say, well, if you swear by something other than God, then it's not necessarily as binding. So they would swear by Jerusalem. They would swear by the throne of God. Um, they would swear by their own head. They would swear uh, on someone else. There was all these workarounds, right? That's what the Pharisees loved doing. All these legal workarounds to kind of get out of obligations or to get out of the fact that their hearts were unclean, right, and sinful. So that at all is not necessarily saying swearing oaths at all, right? Exclusively, it's more talking about the form of the oaths abusing the oaths, uh, swearing oaths to wrong individuals. And we can see this, turn with me to Matt, uh, Hebrews 6. I think that's an important passage. Again, all throughout Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, oaths are looked on positively. So the Anabaptists would argue, well, in the New Testament, we aren't to take oaths. But Hebrews 6 kind of puts that in doubt. Starting in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater 
by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And I forget who, who said it, and I tried to go back and find it, but there was a commentator that said, Look, if this is allowed, if this is a heavenly act of taking an oath, then how can it be sinful completely, right? How can Jesus just switch that and be like, All right, you can't swear an oath at all, right? Even God swears oaths, it look, it's looked on positively. But he goes on, says, And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Verse 16. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So this is, this is an important text, because if there was any time, right, for Paul, who's writing Hebrews, to say, hey, I'm going to back up Jesus' claim and say swearing an oath is wrong completely, if that's how Paul understood Jesus, then he wouldn't say this text, right? He wouldn't say, well, no, oaths are important. For final confirmation, right? Maybe in the court of law, we have to uh, say, hey, here's, here's the truth. Nothing but the truth. So there's a, this is the purpose for oaths. This is the reason why we do oath-keeping uh, and oath-taking. So Jesus is not saying at all exclusively, right? He is saying the form of the oath. Taking, abusing those, swearing on something other than God himself. Any questions on that? I saw one. Yes. Kind of about the language here. Um, keeping the idea of the sanctity of the oath and not invoking it in vain. Is the legal requirement of having that language invoking God problematic in the sense that you shouldn't be saying that if you don't reverse God? So if you're not a believer, should you not invoke his name because that's not taking him as seriously as God says? And that's an interesting question. Um, remind me of your name. Hans. Hans is asking, well, for a non-believer, right, is it wrong for them to invoke God's name in a court of law if they're a non-believer? Um, what do you all think? How would you answer that? <coughs> yes, pastor. I'm not going to answer the question. But Classic. Give it another nugget to think about. Absolutely. Um, and we're, we're going to talk about the Third Commandment, too, because I think that's an argument for why we can still take oaths. Uh, but in regards to your question about non-believers, I mean, I think that there's so many things non-believers do that in some respect don't make sense, right? I mean, any t- even by saying something like my truth or appealing to good and evil, right? I mean, all those things don't make sense if you don't acknowledge God. Um, so I do think it's problematic. But again, they're not, they're not, they're, you know, sinners without the grace of God. Um, and so there's a sense where, yes, they could be um, sinning in acknowledging God in the court of law, but not acknowledging him in their life. Absolutely. Um, but I guess.
guess what are you going to do in some respect, right? Uh, Chandler. Well, I think that sort of goes back to the question I asked, like, should, if, if it's, it's obviously, generally, the confession shows it's lawful to take food by the name of God, there are parameters to that, but what does that mean in the court of law, or, like, when, when people are required to, um, if they're required to swear by the name of God, is that just God the creator, or is it praying God, I mean, is there some sort of test to say, oh, well, Christians can say it, do we need a professional <coughs> case to, to say this, or are we going to require this, and that's, maybe, maybe that will be answered next week, but. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, maybe, you know, I don't know if it's an easy issue to solve because obviously we in our country we do have you know so help me God and there is this acknowledgement of even in you know our rights right as as human beings it's acknowledging God most countries don't have that most countries are just like yeah you just you just got to tell the truth because we're asking you to um, so I don't know that's a, that's an interesting issue on the oath taking the civil government. Something that maybe we take for granted. Of course, when you go to court of law, you can take the oath um, and invoke God's name. Um, but most countries, that's probably not the case. If you look at it from a global perspective. I don't know, have you thought about that at all, Pastor? Or, no? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And yes, go ahead, Jacob. So, so Jacob's asking, well, if, if non-believers are swearing by just anything, are they less trustworthy? And I think that's fair to say. I mean, obviously, if you don't believe in God, a God who can't see everything and is judging your heart, um, and if you don't believe, I mean, non-Christians believe there's more consequences for telling the truth than we do. Because, yes, we might lose wealth. We might, um, you know be put in situations that are harmful to ourselves and don't make sense to the outside world, and yet we know, hey, we're telling the truth before an eternal God, and my, my uh, future is already set. So therefore, I can tell the truth even if it means hurting myself, whereas a non-believer would not have that same perspective. They're just trying to save their skin. You know? Yeah, Sam? I think so far I'm kind of seeing three ways that oaths are taken, and those being swear by something like that is constant and reliable um, and something that is just like sure like I think the idea of swearing by your mother's grave to me that's like that's kind of morbid and distasteful but it's like that's something that's sure like that is something that will exist so like, you're swearing by something that has like something that's surety but then also there's the language of Hebrews swearing by something greater than yourself so by the throne of God 
Yeah, and it really comes down to truth, right? That's kind of why I started, you know, oaths and vows are about truth. And, you know, when you make an oath, you are saying, hey, this is the truth. Or this is the, when a vow, this is the obedience that I'm going to do, and I'm going to be truthful in holding to that obedience. And so like you, you sort of your question, right, talking about if we swear on something other than God, how does that, whatever that is, actually keep you accountable and know if you are holding to that oath and that vow? Because, to be honest, you can lie and no one find out. I mean, you can get away with lying. Um, you can get away with perjuring yourself in a court of law if no one catches you. Um, so, again, I think that's what Jesus is getting at, right? If you are not swearing by God and you're not doing that reverently, acknowledging who he is, then what's the purpose? Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. You know, otherwise there's no pur uh, purpose. And so as Christians, we definitely, I think, view that in the right way, obviously. Um, but as non-Christians, obviously there's going to be some difficulty in that, right? Yes, Melanie? What about the Pledge of Allegiance? <laughs> oh, interesting. I thought about that. Uh, Melanie asked about the Pledge of Allegiance. Well, it's not... Uh, that is interesting. That's a flesh. Um, I don't know, though, if... I think that's where you... And maybe we'll talk about this more when we talk about the civil magistrate. And maybe I'm seeing, okay, there's a lot of questions, and this is where a lot of issues lie. But is a civil magistrate requiring, requiring you to do something in the Pledge of Allegiance that's against what God commands? I don't believe so. Um, I don't believe they're asking you to do something against God's commands when they're asking you to tell the truth in the court of law. Um, in fact, I don't believe they're going against God's commands when they're asking you to say, hey, here's some promises that you need to make if you're going to be a citizen of our country. Um, obviously, other people have different views of that. But I think as the Reformed Christians were obviously extremely pro-civil magistrate. Right? Saying, like, hey, they have a rightful um, domain and a rightful authority and one of, that, one of those authority is to enforce uh, the law against evildoers, is to protect good people from evil. And how do you do that? You have to know the truth. You have to know who's evil and who's good. Um, but maybe we'll get some more of that with the civil magistrate. I'll kind of do that in mind. Ooh, lots of questions. Maybe one more. Go ahead, Sam. And then we'll kind of have to move on. Say that again. Ah, okay. Okay. Yeah, Sam says, you know, looking at through the lens of two kingdoms, right? The, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. Uh, I think that's a great way, 
think about it, and we'll talk about that more next week with the civil magistrate. So, like I said, this, this chapter almost gets a little overshadowed by the civil magistrate because there's just so much there. Um, but I will keep that in mind. And let me, let me read Exodus 20, um, verse 7, which is the third commandment, if you want to follow along with me there. This, this is a, yet another reason why we would say, you know, Jesus clearly says he's not going to take away from the law, right? Not uh, one iota, not one uh, diddle from the law. Um, and so, obviously, that includes the third commandment, the moral law. And this is what God commands his people. He says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So, when I read that, right, I, I used to think, okay, that's just meaning we shouldn't say certain things about God, right? We shouldn't use him when we curse, right? We shouldn't use foul language. But really, that's not the essence of the command. The essence of the command is to say, hey, when you do invoke God's name, right, that you don't invoke it in vain, that you don't break that oath, you don't break that promise that you do when you invoke God's name. Um, again, acknowledging that he is omniscient, that he knows everything, and he has the power, and he's got the justice to exact vengeance. Um, so that command doesn't go away in the New Testament, right? So if that command doesn't go away, then it must, it's, it's approaching bad oath-taking, right? Wrongful oath-taking. And so if there's a command to not take oaths wrongly, it must not mean, hey, there is a rightful way to take oaths and a rightful way to take vows. So that's, that's another argument that a lot of the Puritans utilize in regards to the Anabaptists and the Quakers. You've got to move quickly. Uh, sections 3 and 4 talk about the solemnity and the sincerity of an oath. So again, we, we keep talking about you know, the legality, the lawfulness, when to do it, how to do it, uh, who to do it to. But again, if we land on the understanding that we should take oaths, that we should take vows, that there's a proper time for them, how are we to do it? So the confession says, whoever takes an oath authorized by the word of God should consider with due gravity the seriousness of such a weighty act and to affirm nothing in it except what one knows to be true. For the Lord is provoked by ill-advised, false, and empty oaths. And because of them, this land mourns. So when it says equivocating, which means trying to conceal, um, trying to confuse, to be ambiguous. Um, again, the third and, and even the ninth, and I would say even the first and the second commandments are at, at stake, right? Whenever, if we're taking a, a faulty oath, if we take a rash oath, we are being idolatrous. We are doing that for maybe some reason of self-preservation or self-gain because we're not acknowledging who God is. Uh, the ninth commandment, you should not bear false witness against your neighbor. Right? Anytime we don't tell the truth, we're probably bearing witness towards someone else. Right? If, if we say something that's false and someone else says something that's true, we're bearing false witness. So if we take an oath, and then we break that oath, and we don't tell the truth, again, it's a seriousness. It's a, it's a weighty act. Um, 
So we shouldn't do oaths that are ill-advised, false, empty oaths, right? Common language, just swearing on something, just to say it isn't helpful. It, it, it's, it's not smart. And then section, or paragraph four, an oath is to be expressed in plain and ordinary meaning of the words without equivocation or mental reservation. So sorry, I got ahead of myself. So that's where equivocation, not trying to conceal, to confuse, to be ambiguous. So when you're making an oath or a vow, you're not trying to do it in such a complicated way that people really don't know what you're vowing for, right? It should be plain, it should be simple, not only understandable to God, but understandable to man. Um, any questions on that, those third and fourth paragraphs? Then we'll get to some more. Get to the Catholics. All right. Paragraph number five, the nature of vows. So we talked a lot about oaths, and right, oaths and vows, very similar in some respect, but vows are more obedience-centered, right? More, hey, I'm going to do such and such an act, and I'm going to make this promise before God, right? So sometimes vows, maybe no one else knows about the vow that you've made. Um, so the confession says, a vow must not be made to any creature but to God alone. Vows should be made and performed with the most conscientious care and faithfulness, so it's building on sections three and four. However, the Roman Catholic monastic vows of perpetual single life, professed poverty, and regular obedience are by no means steps to higher perfection. Instead, they are superstitious and sinful snares in which Christians may not entangle themselves. So it has some pretty sharp words for the Roman Catholics. Obviously, our confession was written in the time uh, after immediately after the Reformation, and so they were reforming from the Catholic Church, and so a lot of the chapters in this confession have some stark comments going after the Roman Catholics. And this is why they had a, or they had a section on oaths and vows, is because it was commonplace in the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic monastic vows, if you know anything about monks, right, they have to say, hey, we will not get married, we will be celibate. Um, they profess poverty, right? They're not going to make money necessarily. They're not going to like hold money. Um, the confession is a little cheeky. It does say profess poverty because a lot of the times, you know, the Catholic Church was raking it, it in with the money, and so a lot of times these monks lived pretty good lives. These monasteries were pretty wealthy and good places to live. And then it says. All of these things, regular obedience, that's not necessarily obedience to the moral law. That's obedience to their monastic vows. That's what it means by that. So when you become a monk and you, you vow to obey the specific vows of the, I forget what it's, the, what's, what's? Superior, your, 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 your head man. Head, head man. Abbot, yes. Or whatever that, um, you know, St. Benedictine, I forget the word. The rule, yeah, the rule, yeah. Yes, yeah. So that, that could mean, hey, I mean, obviously it's a vow to say, I will be monastic for the rest of my life. Um, and so the confession says, look, these do not lead to higher perfection. Right? They're claiming, the Catholic Church is saying, if you have vows of chastity, if you have vows of poverty, um, and you're within the church, that you can receive some sort of higher perfection, right? 
And the Catholic Catechism uses this language. It says, a vow is a deliberate and a free promise made to God concerning a possible and better good. If you remember our Sunday school on good works, right? What, What is a better good? Which must be fulfilled by reason of the virtue of religion. The church can dispense from vows and promises. And so the rule of St. Benedict says when he, a monk, is to be received, he promises before all in the oratory stability, fidelity to monastic life, which means chastity and poverty, and then obedience to the rule. So that's problematic, right? What, what does it mean by a better good? Can, can we, besides holding to the moral law, right, can we achieve some sort of better good, some sort of higher perfection? No. <laughs> we cannot, right? And th- these, I'll, I'll say more about that in a sec, but these councils, evangelical councils, celibacy, poverty, obedience, are not just for monks. They're not just for nuns in the Catholic Church. They're They say that these councils show by the means by which the same end, life eternal, may be reached yet more certainly and expediously. So they sort of claim this for everybody, right? These are just really good habits, really good uh, uh, rules for life that do help you grow closer to God and get that better obedience, all right? Yes, Lou? So it's another way of saying Yeah, absolutely. It, it, I mean, it connects to so many things. It connects to infused grace, right? It, we're not justified by faith alone. Um, there's an infusion of grace that, that leads to that like final justification or that final perfection. And so maybe if you are, you know, devote your life to God and do good works and you're celibate and focus on God, um, not on the worldly things, marriage, a job, um, poverty, right? You don't have any semblance of desiring wealth then you can reach that higher perfection. You can be closer to God in some respect. We're almost out of time. There's so much that we could say here. Obviously, this goes against what Paul writes, right? That an individual, you can't make a vow to do something sinful. And so if Paul's teaching, right, that someone who is burning with passion, right, should get married for the sake of their soul, Right? So they don't fall into sin. And someone makes a vow of celibacy. Right? They don't know. They're, they're just making that vow of obedience themselves. They don't know if God's actually called them to celibacy. God had clearly called Paul to celibacy. So that's why this vow is sinful. Because we don't know necessarily if we are called to singleness. Right? Um, and so by making that vow, you're sort of saying, like, I know better than God. I know that... You know, whether or not the rest of my life I'm called to celibacy. Same thing with poverty, right? Scripture says it's better to give than to receive. How do you square that with poverty being a higher good? I don't think you can. Um, Yes, so much there, but I do want to leave you with Scripture. Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7. I'll just read verses 4 through 6. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. 
Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. So, the confession is saying that what we, our mouths do get us into sin, right? What we say with our mouths leads us into sin because if we take rash oaths, if we take vows that are sinful, we are negating God's precious promises, right, of uh, his salvation for us, right? That we are free from these uh, chains of legalism, um, that there is a liberty of conscience. Um, but also, when we invoke the Lord's name in anything, truth-telling, we're acknowledging who he is. Um, and so it's, it's important that we take that with a weighty, um, a weighty thoughts and that we do it sparingly when we really need to. That's why we do it for marriages. That's why we do it um, in a court of law when we're called by the civil magistrate to do that, which we'll talk more about next week. And that's why we do it for church membership as well, that we make vows before God in the presence of other members. So we don't just do these just whenever in life. One, one last question. Yeah. A lot of these vows that they take lead to intense sin. Yeah. Like, like the Lord is Yes, absolutely. I mean, there's so... The monastic vows reveal so many problems with the Catholic Church, their soteriology, their understanding of salvation. Absolutely. I mean, you could do, you could do a whole Sunday school lesson just on that. Um, and it's... I mean, what, what they're telling you is essentially like celibacy, poverty, and devoting yourself to the monastic rule helps you be a better Christian, like, then shouldn't everyone just choose that? Right? I mean, why, why get married and just get a regular job and live quietly? And we see in Scripture that there's this, uh, you know, desire or there's this call to just live peaceably and quietly. Um, to work, work, right? Paul says, hey, I, I came among you and taught among you, but I didn't work, or I didn't ask for money, I worked. Yet, it was my right to ask the money if I wanted to, right? That we should support those who work among us. And so, um, the idea that, like, well, we just have to live in poverty is just so wrong. Um, anyway, I could go on and on, but we do need to end. Um, you can, we do have fellowship lunch if you want to ask me any other questions. And I will definitely prepare to talk a little bit more about oath-taking the command to do that by the civil magistrate and some of those very complicated, hard questions that will no doubt come from that. So, but let me end with prayer. Father, we thank you that you are a God of truth, that you are a God that desires that people everywhere um, ultimately vow and raise an oath to you, Lord, that they would serve you, that they would love you. Um, but Lord, we know that we cannot do that um, by our own power, we do that by the power of Christ in us, that he sanctifies us, that he um, gives us the, the power and the ability to um, help us love him and to serve him, to be faithful to him until the end. So, Lord, we, we do not perfect ourselves, Lord. Christ perfects us. Um, so I just pray that you would help us to measure our words, to... Uh, watch our speech, that our tongue may not lead us into evil, but that we, we would be people that um, truly are honest, that people of integrity, 
um, because we love you and we want to honor you, Lord. So pray for all these things in Jesus' name.